Aloha and welcome to Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Today, my very special guest is Dr. John L. Turner, author of Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, A Doctor's Journey Through the Worlds of Divine Intervention, Near-Death Experiences, and Universal Energy. Conversations is sponsored by HealthMasterySystems.com, Holistic Products for Body, Mind, and Soul, and PurePlanEssentials.com, Organic Aromatherapy. Please visit these websites today. Be sure to visit the iTunes store and subscribe for the complete lineup of shows on Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Dr. Turner is a board-certified neurosurgeon, and his new book, Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, is a non-fiction narrative about his surgical career and spiritual quest and his evolutionary journey in the field of integral medicine. While completing his doctoral degree in physics, Dr. Turner was given a book about Edgar Cayce, The Sleeping Prophet, which changed the course of his life. For 18 years, Dr. Turner served as the sole neurosurgeon on the island of Hawaii. From his first day on call in Hilo, Hawaii, metaphysical events began to occur. Dr. Turner's curiosity drove him to explore non-traditional healing. Some of the healing techniques he used included the practice of jorei, chanting and meditation, soul travel and astral projection, and precognition and remote viewing. Dr. Turner is the only brain surgeon to write about medicine from the perspective of integral medicine and uses his complementary techniques prior to, during, and after surgery. Notably, Dr. Turner's complementary methods explore pathways that lead to the spiritual world. To learn more about Dr. John L. Turner and his work, please visit his website, where you can also subscribe to his blog at johnlturner.com. That's johnlturner.com. Please welcome to the show my very special guest, Dr. John L. Turner. Hello, KG. Thank you for having me on your show. Aloha, Jack. Thanks for joining us. We're happy to have you with us. Yes, thank you. When I was a little girl in sixth grade, I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up. I told everyone I wanted to be a brain surgeon so I could change the way people think. What inspired you to be a brain surgeon, Jack? I never thought of it, KG, until I was uh, in medical school, actually, and I was offered a research uh, position, a part-time job with the psychiatry department. I had planned to go into psychiatry at that time. Mm. But uh, after uh, that, it, I changed my mind about psychiatry. I felt it was very difficult, and uh, I wasn't that interested in it after all. And then I was offered a job with the neurosurgery department doing spinal cord trauma research, mm-hmm. and that was interesting. And halfway through medical school, I was offered a spot in the neurosurgical training program at Ohio mm-hmm. State University. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed to pop up for me. Uh, mm-hmm. My interest was to study the spiritual world. Uh, I was given a book by Edgar Casey, and as you mentioned, I was in a training program uh, preparing to obtain a doctorate in physics. I had a Bachelor of Science in Engineering Physics, mm-hmm. and I had progressed past the master's stage and on to Ph.D. when this book changed everything. Uh, to see how Edgar Casey could be 85% accurate in his medical diagnosis and treatment was just outstanding. And where he could call this information, what type of other dimensions, really fascinated me. And I made a dramatic and sudden change into medicine, trying to uh, look into the spiritual world and how the brain and mind functioned. And what year was that? Me. I'm sorry? What year was that? Yeah, let's see. This was back in, I ended medical school in 1972. So, quite a while ago. Yeah, quite a while ago, and then I'd been in graduate school in the uh, late 69, 1969, I would say, and that's when that book just surfaced. I don't know who gave me that book, The Sleeping Mm -hmm. Prophet, but that changed everything, and I've met Mm -hmm. so many people who Edgar Cayce was the stimulus Mm -hmm. Uh, for them to get into psychic uh, things and parapsychology and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. Neurosurgery came along near the end of things to guide me more towards the brain and the mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, you were a way-shower. You were really ahead of your time. Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) Well, I mean, you're a visionary, it sounds like. I mean, you were open and receptive to new visions, new ways of... Visioning, yeah, healing, I think and that was because of my parents, in particular my mother, mm-hmm. who always said it's not your IQ that matters, it's your I quit level that counts, meaning that whatever you want to do or whatever anyone wants to do, it's just a matter of...
mm-hmm. as a pre-written uh, program. I was supposed to do this, and I didn't mm-hmm. have much choice. And it's the flow for you. Yeah. Well, it's been kind of a flow. It's true, and uh, <laughs> it's strange how I look at things now, uh, KG. And I know you understand this statement. I see that my lessons this time around were really to learn true forgiveness. Mm-hmm. In order to proceed to understanding uh, what people mean by unconditional love and how to learn about this and actually practice it, I think mm-hmm. that may be the reason we're all here to do mm-hmm. that. But in my case, I went through many uh, learning situations to learn how to forgive. Mm-hmm. And when I finally reached that point of true forgiveness, I mean 100% forgiveness, then I was able to look back and see what brought me along that path. Mm-hmm. And it's been very interesting. And it's my thinking now that although we, we, we you know, follow a script, a pre-written script, so to speak, like we're actors in our own play, uh, I think we do have some element of free will to make some choices, but for the most part, we're here to endure these lessons and to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And so that was my lesson, uh, to learn forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Well, in today's show, we'll be exploring many of the topics you cover in Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations from an integral medicine perspective, such as dealing with critical illness, understanding brain surgery, and in- brain injury, Eastern religion, complementary mentory medicine, precognition and remote viewing, metaphysical manifestations including astral projection, near-death experiences, and out-of-body experiences to name a few. Could you share your experience of dream contact by a patient who is not only comatose but legally brain dead? Yeah, uh, all these things you mentioned we're going to cover in this conversation, right? That's a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> let's start with that one. Uh, I can briefly summarize that uh, that case. There, well, there are two cases that that I describe in my book of people who were considered to be brain dead, and uh, one had an angelic visitation, uh, but the other had a precognitive experience that led him to believe that he never wanted to be an organ donor and this is one thing that saved his life and I'm not exactly sure which case you were referring to that you'd like me to discuss those are the two uh, possibilities um well uh you know tell about the angelic visitation that one was a interesting one yeah, this was an interesting case indeed because uh, fate had it that I would meet this patient in the evening at the uh, Hilo Hospital emergency room. And what had happened, uh, I received a call that a patient was on the way with a dilated pupil on one mm-hmm. side. That means the eye was dilated, meaning there was some type of sudden event that caused pressure on the brain, most mm-hmm. likely some type of hemorrhage within the brain. Mm-hmm. And as I looked at this patient, uh, and I saw that she still had some movement, and the CAT scan showed a large, what we call a subdural hematoma, KG, that's bleeding between the brain and the covering of the brain. And it really has a high mortality, and things have to move fast. And already there was some delay getting the patient to the hospital because of logistics, and they lived quite far away. But at any rate, I explained to the family that we had to move fast to try to save her life, and just as I was wheeling her up to surgery, uh, the daughter called out, what about the light? And I was perplexed. I said, the light? She said, yes, what about that light? And I said, well, really, I'd like to hear about that, but I don't have time now. I said, we'll talk later. And I went up to surgery, and I did what we call the procedure. is called a craniotomy, case. Mm-hmm. It means a temporary removal of a circular plate of bone to get to the blood clot and remove the pressure. Well, that went okay, but unfortunately I wasn't able to do it in time, and eventually on the respirator she became what we call brain dead, meaning she was dependent completely upon the respirator for life support. Mm -hmm. And both of her pupils at that time were dilated, and uh, despite all medical measures such as hypothermia and induced barbiturate coma, there was nothing I could do to, you know, bring her back. And I recommended to the family that in this case the best thing for this person would be to stop life support. But uh, the husband couldn't uh, come to a decision because, unfortunately, he and his wife and family had never discussed this possibility. Things happened so suddenly. And she had had some type of intracranial surgery before for a very rare disease, and the husband thought this meant that she was in the clear. But unfortunately, there are small vessels in that disease that tend to 
point of this story is that the daughter eventually was able to tell me about the meaning of the light. And on the morning of her death, basically, or the morning of that surgery, uh, the mother uh, awoke to a bright light in her room. And it was so bright, according to the daughter, the way the mother described it, that she had to cover her eyes with her arms. She couldn't look into this light. Wow. It, it filled the room. That's incredible. But she struggled to do it, KG, and when she finally was able to peek into this light, what she saw was the apparition of an angel, I guess the type that most people see with the halo and the wings and all that, mm-hmm. and then it suddenly disappeared, the light went away, and something changed for that lady. She went to see all of her friends that she could find that day, just to talk with them, not explaining much about the light, but just making contact. Mm-hmm. And then with one daughter that she had been on the outs with for two years, she called that daughter and made peace mm-hmm. and asked for forgiveness. And then that evening when getting out of the shower, oh, I might mention, all of the friends said to her that day how beautiful she looked. Mm-hmm. And there was something very calm and peaceful about her demeanor. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that evening when she came out of the shower, she told the family she felt very dizzy and collapsed on the floor, mm-hmm. had a seizure. And when the emergency room squad got there, uh, her pupil was dilated and she was in the process of what we call herniating, meaning the brain was trying to be forced out of the skull. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, here we are now after surgery. I couldn't save her, and she became uh, brain dead, no electrical activity of the brain by uh, electroencephalography and other tests that show the brainstem is not functioning uh, to you know, have the person be able to breathe and live. But yet the husband couldn't uh, decide day after day for the next few days. And then one evening, when I got home, got in bed, I looked over at all the books in the bookshelf, and one book seemed to, in a way, kind of light up. I don't know, I focused right on this book called Embraced by the Light by Betty oh, yes. Uh, and it was a famous book that my wife had given me a couple of years before. And then it hit me, this is the book this man needs to understand. And I put it in my truck that evening so I wouldn't forget the next morning, and I brought it to the hospital, and I found him in the usual fashion, sitting despondent with his head down, and I, I asked him to walk out to me, with me to the truck. And I said, now look, here's something for you. My wife gave this to me, but I realized it is really for you. Mm-hmm. And as I drove away, I noticed he was standing in the middle of the doctor's parking lot reading this book, and cars were trying to get around him, uh, but he just stood there, and I said, well, you must really like this book. And then the next day when I went to make rounds, I said hello to him. He was sitting there still looking sad, but then he said, Doctor, I want to tell you something. He said, yesterday when you took me outside and you handed me this book, he said, all I could wonder, why would he give me a book that his wife gave him? He said, I was really confused, but when you drove away and I looked at the cover, I realized this is the book my wife tried to get me to read for two years, and I always refused to even look at it. Oh, my. Because I went home, I looked all around, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And then he smiled, KG, the biggest smile I've ever seen. He said, now I know that she used you to let me know how she feels and that she wants to move on. Mm-hmm. And the end of the story is by coincidence, perhaps, that morning when I left home, I put a pen in my pocket that belonged to my wife at the time. It had an angel on the clip. Uh, she really liked angels and things like that. So mm-hmm. I took the pen with me, and just as soon as he said, now I know she used you, I pulled that out and I showed him that angel, and I said, exactly. And he, the family came, we disconnected the respirator, and it was a very peaceful moving on to this lady, who was That lucky. is so incredible. That what a story. Gave her a chance to, to say goodbye to everyone. And we should all be that lucky, KG. That is an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned it right at the beginning when we were talking before the show started about that you've been working in uh, why people should not fear death. Maybe now is a good time for you to talk about that. Uh, Dr. John Lerma, who, by the way, maybe will be an excellent guest for your show, has written a couple of books about people and their angelic visitations prior to death. He's a hospice doctor, Dr. Lerma, and he's interviewed perhaps 10 to 12,000 patients in their passing. And he explains how about four days prior to their death, uh, they may start to see family members or others kind of come into the room and slowly, day by day, approach the bed and maybe end up sitting on the bed with the patient. Mm -hmm. 
And when it's a family member who has passed on, these, these visitations are usually full-formed apparitions, not wispy or ghost-like. So anyway, his books, Into the Light and, Le and Learning from the Light, are great books. And he has been involved in a couple of uh, documentary film projects. Uh, one is yeah. called uh, Quantum Wisdom, uh, with director Nick Mendoza, and the other is called Spirit, with Devine uh, Summers is her name. And actually, I'll be talking with her tomorrow about why people should not fear death. And it fits in with my interest because I have been uh, very interested in this since writing the book. I wanted to go deeper than the medicine, miracles, and manifestations into this idea of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Renee Jorgensen has done a lot of research with Taro and so forth and near-death experiences. And one statement I'd like to quote from him is he wrote that, I think that scientific research of near-death experiences where clinically dead people with flat EEG, no brain activity, report clear consciousness in their near-death experience is the most interesting piece of evidence of life after death that we have. And it's true, the cases uh, in neurosurgery where we call them cardiac standstill in which the blood flow to the brain is stopped, it's all done under hypothermia so we can, we can work in, on this condition for a while with the patient in this condition, but during this time, they're clinically, legally dead. They have no electrical activity of the brain. There's no mm -hmm. blood flowing to the brain. Uh, those cases and other cases, like Dr. Melvin Morse reports of a young girl uh, in Pocatello, Idaho, who for 18 minutes was underwater. And clinically, you would have to say that she would be brain dead. There was oh, no blood flow. No yes. But yet, she and these other uh, surgical cases can report things happening during that condition of no blood flow to the brain. So it shows us that consciousness definitely persists. And uh, when I'm asked the question, is there life after death, I have to say absolutely, without a doubt, there's no question about that. The American belief in the afterlife can be as high as from 55 to 90-some percent. But as uh, my friend Michael Tim, uh, author of the book The Articulate Dead, has pointed out, uh, these are people who have the hope there's an afterlife, but those few percent, maybe five percent or so, who actually believe and know there is an afterlife, uh, have escaped the materialism of the world. And you'll see these people are out to help others all the time, and they're very unpretentious people. And I'm sure you know people like that. In your yes, I do. <laughs> so, uh, things are changing. People are starting to wake up. As you know, the whole world is changing now, but I think there's definite evidence in the afterlife. And I've been a proponent of getting back to the old-time ways, KG. In other words, all the modern science is very good, but we need to think about how did it used to be, mm -hmm. and perhaps the spiritual world and things that can be gained through spiritism are the ways we need to go back and incorporate in the holistic and complete treatment mm -hmm. of the patient. Mm -hmm. And maybe as just human beings, we need to do this just to understand what we're going through and the fact that it's a never-ending story, and we're here to learn lessons, and it's going to continue. Yeah, so tell us about the case you witnessed of a verified malignant, malignant brain tumor disappearing after a treatment which blended Western medicine with an Eastern treatment that involved the removal of karmic retribution. Well, yeah, this was a very instrumental case in my education. Um, if you talk to most doctors, they will say they've seen a case of what they call miracle healing or spontaneous remission, but mm -hmm. this was the first for me. And it was in a lady from Vietnam who had a tumor in the center of her brain, and by all criteria, it was malignant, and the treatment was to obtain a small specimen for biopsy and then submit her to radiation therapy and then perhaps chemotherapy to try to extend her life in the best possible way. And so that means taking a small piece of this tumor surgically. And fortunately, I had a friend who knew the family. He was a Zen Buddhist priest. And he accompanied them on their visit. Mm -hmm. And after I explained my recommendations in the surgery, uh, uh, he came back with them uh, after the surgery to set up the radiation. Uh, and this time, there were seven Vietnamese monks that accompanied this lady. And we discussed everything, six weeks of radiation. And I said, now, was she Vietnamese? Or? Yes, yes, okay. Vietnamese. And 
So after they left, my friend John uh, called me aside, and he said, look, I want to talk to you a minute. He said, now, you see what's happening. He said, I bet you think they flew over from Vietnam to uh, pray for her, don't you? And I said, well, it looks like it to me, John. I mean, they, they have on these orange, uh, yellow robes, and they had these prayer beads and all that. He said, well, I want to tell you why they came. They know that she's harbored this intense hatred for a particular friend of hers for many years. They feel it's caused this malignant tumor, mm-hmm. and that her only chance is to uh, give up that that hatred. Uh, it's a karmic type of thing, and once she can do that, she has a chance to heal. Mm-hmm. So what they're going to do during the six weeks, they're going to start guiding her through a meditation where she can see what these seven hell worlds are like. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, this number So she seven, goes through the fires months. of transformation and healing. That's exactly. what it sounds like. And, and, yeah. and apparently they took her through that, or they planned to, and I wish them all luck, but I said, John, you know, a tumor like this in the center of the brain certainly malignant. I don't know how, how that's going to come out, but I wish them luck. Well, when they came back in six weeks, they came back with a repeat CAT scan of the brain. Mm-hmm. And when I pulled that out of the envelope, I'll never forget looking at what looked like a normal scan. There was no tumor, which before looked like a large lemon lighting up in the center of her brain. And right away, I dialed the phone number for the radiology department, and I spoke with the guy in charge. I said, look, did you give me the right films? He said, well, take a close look. You'll see that this is your patient. You can see a little bit of where you did the surgery, but there's absolutely no tumor. He said, I was shocked, too. And I explained to the family that the tumor was gone, and uh, they smiled. But it looks like they knew all along yeah. that this was the anticipated result. Yeah. So that taught me a lot. It taught me that there are a lot of things that I didn't understand about karma and about prayer and so yeah. forth. What is karmic retribution and what role does it play in illness? Well, here's the thing. I think illness, if we talk about disease, I, I like to break that up into two parts, dis and ease. Because I think it's this dis of ease that causes the uh, medical problems and illness. And, of course, it's not always the case. There are random things. Some uh, cosmic ray may change a lot of things in the DNA and lead to unexpected results. But for the most part, I think we can be healthy and clean if we have a healthy spiritual body, meaning we don't have these karmic debts that we're carrying around. We don't have. And would you say the spiritual body is the energy body? Would you... Yes, and I think the physical body will come into agreement. You mentioned the word jore, which is something uh, coined by a man named Mokichi Okada, who was born in 1882, died in 1955. That word literally in Japanese means uplifting of the spirit. Mm -hmm. And in his enlightenment, he was blessed with this four-centimeter sphere of light within his abdomen, and he realized that he could heal people by touching them, and even without touching, by letting this spiritual light energy flow from the palm of his hand and like many great teachers so it raised their vibration and they were able to heal their consciousness in their consciousness do you think that's what was happening no I'll tell you why I would say no to that I mean it's a likely explanation uh, for most people to say but if I may explain the theory of what happens with this okay, this light there is light emitted from every cell of our bodies, something I never was taught in medical school, something I found out about by patients who gave me books. One of them was called Into the Light by a Dr. Gary Douglas that studied all the different types of light therapy used in the days before penicillin. And one was called, for example, photoluminescence, KG. That's when blood is taken from the patient, run through a glass chamber using quartz rather than glass to surround this blood as it flows, and this quartz is illuminated from without with ultraviolet light. Uh, If glass is used, it'll block ultraviolet light, but the blood was irradiated and then returned to the patient, and not all the blood, maybe only 150 cc's, but what happened, those red cells would start to induce the other red cells of the body to emit this ultraviolet uh, frequency of fluorescence, and a lot of diseases were being cured. Well, penicillin then came out in the early, what, 30s or something, and put a halt to all that. But Dr. Douglas continued and wrote this book in 1986. Well, another book at the same time a patient gave me was The Secret Life of Plants, and the first time I realized that plants, fruits, and vegetables emit this ultraviolet light also, And then when trying to figure out what does this all mean, uh, I read about Mokichi Okada and his theory that 
this spiritual light energy can be channeled to the patient. Mm-hmm. So it's emitted, we know now, from all the cells of the body, but particularly the hands and fingers mm-hmm. and the fingertips. And what o- Mr. Okada said was, look, what you see me doing, you can do too. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm telling you, I don't know about that level of uh, consciousness being involved, because what he said was this. If I write the kanji, the Japanese character for light, it's called hikari, he said, whatever is in me is transmitted to the molecules of this ink. He said, just take this. He would write it out with pen and ink, give it to the person. He said, now, with, with this in your possession, it'll link you to me with a spiritual cord mm-hmm. and in the spiritual world, and you'll be able to use your hand to transmit some of my light energy. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I say level of consciousness, there's one case in my book, there's one picture only in my book, and that's of my doing this in surgery after repairing a brain injury, letting this energy flow for a half hour to someone who was not only unconscious but under anesthesia to boot. So to say this did something to the consciousness, well, perhaps, but more likely there's something to do with the spiritual light energy that stimulates the immune system, makes it kick in to help with healing. Mm-hmm. But everything helps, even the power of prayer. So I think we've got to bring everything to bear against mm-hmm. the disease, Kiji. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful explanation of that. So, <clears throat> so uh, I don't think I heard exactly what you think karmic debt is. What is karmic debt, and how does the re- resolution of karmic debt allow healing to occur? Uh, I have one chapter in my book about the power of chanting, mm-hmm. and this is the evangelistic set of Buddhism where people chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo as well as other prayers in Japanese and Sanskrit. And the idea is to burn off any type of karma that you've accumulated in this life or brought from past lives because that karmic debt at some point they feel has to be repaid. And what kind of karmic debt could it be? Well, I tell you, uh, my good friend Dr. Pillay, a neurologist from India, always teased me because he knew that I shot a rabbit when I was 14 Mm -hmm. and a couple of birds when I had a pellet gun. Now, I tell you why that's significant. The people I may have harmed, for the most part, I've tried to contact all that I could think of and ask for their forgiveness Mm -hmm. for anything I may have done as far as hurting them or harming them. But I'll never be able to make up for that rabbit and those few birds. And that's a but you can communicate with them through well, the field. Well, I, I feel that I've, I've tried to do that, but I don't really have any great feedback yet. But yeah. I, you know, it's one of those things. And, yeah. uh, but with people, I've been able to really uh, approach them and, and ask for their forgiveness. And yeah. Well, animals are a little different because they sorry. do... Animals are a little different because they are more group souls. Well, a lot of them. So, what happened was, you know, you know, when you're that age and you're a boy, maybe mm-hmm. girls too, and you have your first pellet rifle, you want to shoot at something, right? And mm-hmm. tin cans uh, aren't that great. And then I just happened to shoot this rabbit, and and then I know my uncle saw what was happening, and he made me skin that rabbit, oh. and through all the tears and crying, oh, and then after that, I never hunted again. Yeah, that's but yet, deep. Still, I feel that like really this life. Yeah. I and tell he, you, I try yeah. to harm nothing now. You know, yeah. a cockroach or a centipede, the rare things that happen, I uh, take them right outside, and they seem to leave me alone. Yes. They, they seem to be able to communicate like that. Yes. Uh, yes, it's yeah. true. It is true. So, you devoted one year to the study of Ekinkar, the ancient science of soul travel. Why were you wanting to explore the astral plane, Jack, and what did you learn? Before that book on Edgar KC, when I was in graduate school, my only interest in anything metaphysical was to try to escape my body through astral projection. I read books by Oliver Fox and Sylvan Muldoon, all the famous things, and I used to try to roll out of my body like they say you can do, but I, nothing ever happened. And, uh, and then as time went on, I, I came across this Ekankar. Uh, Paul Twitchell uh, started this uh, in the 50s, I believe, when suddenly a man appeared in his room and asked him to begin taking dictation. Mm-hmm. And this has happened to other people, such as the uh, author of The Course in Miracles. There's nothing new, this channeled thing, but, but this was different. It was called The Ancient Science of Soul Travel because the theory is that learned 
leaving your body and maybe to a dreamlike type of astral projection and take you to places where you can look at the Akashic records and those type of things. Mm -hmm. And they had a series of 12 uh, monthly lessons, different techniques to roll out of the body, so to speak. And I decided I would give this a full year and try it. I read all their books. I tried all their exercises. But yet and still, KG, nothing ever happened. I never had an out-of-body experience trying to trying to force it that way through a structured technique. Now, my friend Robert Bruce, the author, author of Astral Dynamics and Mastering Astral Projection and so forth, uh, you know, has a great series of, of training courses and books about it, and many people are able to do this. I was never able to accomplish it. Now, I don't know why. I don't know if I was too tightly bound to my body or what, but it never worked for me. But I did have a great interest in it, and I carried that interest on until a good friend, mm-hmm. another neurosurgeon, Tyrone Hardy, told me that I shouldn't want to do that for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to say, once you become enlightened, this and many other things will mm-hmm. start to happen. Well, that simple phrase of his made me think, that might be the way to approach this whole thing. You know, Rather than try to experience these things just to say I've done it, let me try to clean up spiritually and see if they will start to happen. Mm-hmm. And that was a long time ago that that began. But uh, that's my response to your question about karma. Yes, yeah, so that's yeah, you, at that time you encountered a Buddhist teaching about how to burn off negative karma with written instruction to enlightenment on a sacred scroll. And that told you that's all that's required is to follow the, the teachings implicitly. And so tell us, you know, what happened yeah. in following what those that teachings. Was, that was the uh, chanting of Nami Hodorengekyo, according to the Buddhist uh, monk, Nichiren, Nichiren. And basically, what when I heard about this, the reason I wanted to try it and devote a year to that, too, was the theory, uh, if I can put it in, in simple words, was this. He said, look, there's a way you can have your life go the way you want it to go. You don't have to, you know, uh, you know, have all these painful things happen. You can burn off this karma, and the way you do it is to tap into those powers of the universe, the powers that make the the planets rotate around our sun, that makes our sun rotate around other suns, and galaxies rotate around galaxies. He said, "Here's the way you do it." And on a scroll, he carved down the middle, and Nami Hodorengekyo, and on the side, other instructions to enlightenment. And he said, mm-hmm. "The true teaching of Buddha." is the Lotus Sutra. He said, by following this teaching, you can reach enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And it required an hour a day of, you know, getting down with these uh, beads, these prayer beads, and focusing on the scroll, and having these candles lit, and chanting these these different stories mm-hmm. in Japanese mm-hmm. and Sanskrit that, that were very interesting. Once I was able to get these translated and figure out what all this chanting was about, mm-hmm. uh, it said, basically, it's the power in this Namiho Renkei-kyo. And as you know, People like Tina Turner and others swear by this, that they can have their life go the, the way they want it. Well, after the year was up, I, I realized what was going on. I, I do feel, like you say, this is getting to another level of consciousness, another level of mental awareness, and I found I didn't need all the, the beads and the, you know, the gong ring. The paraphernalia. Yes, I, I thought that once you know what this state of mind is like, you can kind of get to that without all these... Mm-hmm trappings, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what that scroll was about that you mentioned and mm-hmm. all that. And when I asked the man who told me about, uh, you know, once you become enlightened, I told him I'd heard about this Nami Hodorengekyo, and that's when he told me that's where he started 17 years before. Mm-hmm. So I knew this was only a starting point, and yes. I had a long time to go. Yes. Well, tell us about your meeting with the Man of Light. Well, the... Uh, when they refer to a meeting with the man of light, that means a spiritual understanding of the man I mentioned earlier, Mokichi Okada. Mm-hmm. And as a result of being involved with that, I'm still involved with them uh, here in Hilo. Uh, twice a month we have a clinic where people come to experience flower arranging, the tea ceremony, uh, things of art and beauty, and also to receive jorei, that mm-hmm. medical art of Japan, which means uplifting of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's where that spiritual light energy is channeled. And mm-hmm. most people who come to visit end up obtaining uh, this amulet called the ohikari, meaning it's an honorific form of saying this hikari or light is the key to being able to do this. 
So it varies from other types of energy healing in that the thought is that this energy that this one man received who died in 1955 is still able to share this light energy with living mortals who can use it to heal. And all he said was very simple, try it, see for yourself, and then you'll know if it's something you want to do. So there are places that people can do this, and on my website there are links to to Mokichi Okada and people can Yes, see you have a wealth of information on your site. It's a really wonderful website. After returning from Japan, you began uh, integrating alternative methods into your medical practice. Tell us about your first experience when using an integrated approach in your medical practice, Jack. Well, the first experience dates huh, way back, probably when I took hydrogen peroxide orally myself. wanted to do it intravenously, but I began doing these things. I began looking into remote viewing to see if this is a way to aid in diagnosis and healing. I began to use Jorae uh, in surgery and before surgery and after surgery, that channeling of that spiritual light. Uh, I've even tried the use of shark cartilage with malignant brain tumors. I've tried everything I could think of that might help the patient. But I think one of the most powerful things was the chapter I begin the book with, which has to do with intraoperative prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I've come to the realization now that there are a couple of different types of prayer. There's a goal-directed prayer and non-goal-directed prayer. And my friend Bill Sweet, in his excellent book, A Journey into Prayer, has taught me that that case I described both types of prayer. It was if you have a moment, I'd like to briefly uh, talk about that power. Please. It was a case in which I thought was going a routine removal of a brain tumor. It was a benign tumor, meaning removal was the was the cure. And right when I had the last small piece to remove after four hours work under the microscope, as soon as I removed that piece, everything turned a bright red. And for the next four hours, trying to repair an injured blood vessel, whatever I did failed, and we had replaced all of the woman's blood, yes. which is not a good thing to do. It leads to other complications. And yet, eight hours into the surgery, I, I couldn't stop the bleeding. And that's when I said a silent prayer. I said, if there is a higher power, I don't know what to call it, God or whatever, a creator, whatever, I need some help because I cannot do this. And I said, I need this bleeding to stop. I need help to stop it, and I need it now because I couldn't believe the woman was going to die right in front of me on the table. Well, I started making the fine sutures using the tiny clips, and uh, within 15 minutes when I released the pressure to look, it was completely dry. It was just amazing. That's amazing. And then I said, wait a minute, I'm thinking again, another prayer. I said, I'm not through yet. I said, no, thank you for this, but she may never wake up. She may end up on a respirator, and if she makes it through that, she may end up half paralyzed or completely paralyzed I said look let her come out of this the best possible way and I said in return I'll try to be the best possible person that I can be well I tell you what happened at the end of that thing three months later she came to my office for a final visit with a CAT scan that showed no more tumor and physically she had a slight droop to her right eyelid but other than that she felt great and she gave me a plaque uh, they had a Japanese, two Japanese kanji. And being a Filipino person, I said, well, what does this mean? She said, I really don't know that either. But she said, I do know this. And she gave me a, that big smile. And she said, I know this is good for you. And I kept it in my office. So every time I'm talking to a patient, I could look up and see that plaque. And then one Christmas when I had a party for the doctors, I asked a Japanese physician to come back with me. I said, no, tell me something. Ted, what, what does that mean? He said, or roughly translated, that means peace. And I thought, I thought I had it nailed, KG. I said, yes, there is this higher power, and when we need it, it's there for us. Now, I haven't changed my mind about that. I believe there certainly is this creative force that is allowing us to talk right now and allowing people who are listening to listen right now and makes everything work, and we can tap it when we need to. But the question is, is this force within ourselves or is it external? That is the question. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the website, and uh, I think you might know by now that the friend of mine who created that website, Martin Simmons, expired. He passed on in February of this mm-hmm. year. No, I and didn't know that. Yeah, there's a link on my website. If you look for 
disincarnate entities. Mm -hmm. You'll find the story of how he had agreed before he became ill to work with me on researching the afterlife. Uh, one way he, his interest was to use what's called EVP, or electronic voice phenomenon. Mm -hmm. and now I then, did see that. Yeah, so well, that's who you were communicating with. Well, here's what happened. As soon as he had agreed to work with me on that, he asked me about a strange pain he was having in his abdomen. And two months later, I find myself in London at his bedside uh, when he was dying. Mm -hmm. And the day before he died, I said, Now, Martin, are you still interested in this research project? And he looked up at me in pain, severe pain, and he said, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. He died the next day. Mm -hmm. He had cancer of his colon with metastatic lesions to his liver and beyond. Mm -hmm. So he was really in bad shape. But after I returned to Hawaii... I gave it a try to see if I could contact him using uh, various electronic methods, and one that I describe on the website anyone can do by purchasing a simple $25 uh, receiver from Radio Shack. Mm -hmm. You can open it up and cut one wire, KG, and it turns it into a sweeping device that scans the frequencies. And as soon as I put that together, I turned on a little digital recorder, and I held it up to the speakers, and I said, Martin, are you there? And within two seconds came a voice, clear and in a British accent, that said, hello. And when I played that for his friends and family, there are links to it on my website so you can be heard, they couldn't believe it. They said, that's our dad. That's him. That's the way he answers the phone. And it really was in his voice. Well, I only tried two more times after that because I said, let me back up here and study this whole phenomenon a little bit. But each time I tried it, the next two times, something came through clear right away in response to that question, a voice that was formed on the recorder. And the second time, when I said, Martin, are you there? KG had said, that's the question. So phenomenal stuff. However, wow, that's I'm amazing. looking now at another way to contact those who have passed on, and I think it's the way of the mediums of yesteryear. Mm -hmm. I think especially mediums who can take ectoplasm and extrude it and form it into spiritual entities, I think these are the old-time ways I've talked about. So I mm -hmm. hope with other friends, uh, Dr. Taylor and my friend Ernie Morgan, to go to Brazil in September mm -hmm. and actually be part of this whole thing with John of God in Brazil. Oh, yes, I know John of God. I was there. Well, now we'll have to talk sometime about that. Cause <laughs> this is our plan. We plan to go there. And Heather Cumming, who wrote the book, recent book, John of God, acts as his translator has offered me to have a front row seat to do that. Now, I'm not going mm -hmm. so much to believe KG or to just experience what it's like to sit in the current. I have a strong feeling that I'm supposed to be involved in a more uh, active way with this type of healing. Mm -hmm. I think this is the next step. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, who introduced you to the art of remote viewing, Jack? I was in Japan and I was at a research center where they researched this array or this channeling of light energy scientifically using EEGs and Faraday cages and all that kind of stuff. And I was kind of bored my second trip and I went to a conference room early, the only one there, and I said, let me just grab a book, a random off the bookshelf. And I opened it up to a random page, I thought, but it was the first page of this article about the Stargate and remote viewing, the U.S. Army and Stanford Research Institute. I'd never heard of this uh, way to send your mind out to gather information from the collective unconscious. And, you know, it was interesting to me, but I had no idea what, what was in store for me because six months later, I'm working with uh, Major Ed Dames, who most people have heard about, who was one of the training officers in the Army unit, and he mm -hmm. came to Hilo to teach me how to do this remote viewing, which mm -hmm. uh, with pencil and paper lets you send your mind out to download information about any particular target in past, mm -hmm. present, or future. Mm -hmm. So I was introduced to it as if it was part of the plan for me to experience a way to get in touch with the spiritual world and these other dimensions. Mm -hmm. And now, almost daily, something new happens to further guide me along these directions. Mm -hmm. But remote viewing started in Japan, ended in Hilo, and I got a chance to try to use it to actually investigate the afterlife. So and, uh, what is remote viewing? It's a way to uh, reach that collective unconsciousness that Carl Jung uh, called it, let's say, where everything is stored. You know, I was a student of Carl Jung. 
I was at the Young Institute. No, exactly right. And others may call these the Akashic Records, many names, but it's felt mm-hmm. that everything about everything exists there. And the question is, how do we tap into it? And the Army and Stanford Research Institute and people like uh, physicists Hal Putoff and others studied Ingo Swan, the great psychic who could actually yeah. retrieve information at a given location. And they said, well, let's figure out a way we can teach an ordinary person how to do it. And it takes a series of a couple of hundred steps, but there's a way to do it with a simple pen and paper, and you're in a process that's called bilocation. In other words, you know fully well you're sitting at a table with your pen, but you also realize that part of you is at this target location mm-hmm. and able to you know, experience what's going on and, mm-hmm. and to retrieve the information. So that's what it's viewing done remotely mm-hmm. at a distance, mm-hmm. but in a very structured and organized way. And the accuracy of this is felt to be as good as any good psychic, mm-hmm. around 85%. Mm-hmm. Were you finally able to interact directly with the uh, universal energy field through remote viewing, Jack? Well, uh, put it like this, I was able to, to look into the past, present, and future. Uh, I have some thoughts about the future and how accurate that is because I feel that, you know, I'm a firm believer in the theory of parallel universes. Yes. And I believe that any time we have a decision to make, not only are there an infinite number of possible ways we could go, that each one of those springs into existence as its own separate universe and continues on. So I think when we tap into these futures, we may be tapping to some that don't ever come out to pass. You know, it's a very iffy thing. Yeah. So that's why I didn't stick with this remote viewing very long. It, I, we did a medical case for remote viewing. It takes a lot of work to do, and perhaps mm-hmm. it can help. But I felt there were better ways to contact the spiritual world and universal energy. Mm-hmm. Reiki is another way, which you're familiar with, yes. which is that anyone can use to do. So this universal energy is all around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lynn McTaggart calls it the field or yes. zero-point energy. But there's a tremendous amount of energy in every cubic millimeter of space. And in the vacuum of outer space, it's not actually a true vacuum. There's constantly energy going on everywhere. And mm-hmm. it's just a matter of John... Travolta put it very well in that movie Phenomena. It's just a matter of knowing how to interact because we're all energy and everything is energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, since I brought up that movie, there's a part where he, he states that everything is on its way somewhere. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to realize and then we can show true respect for everything. So you state that there is a plan written for every one of us and our lives faithfully follow this plan stored securely in the universal energy field and with which we constantly interact. How does this divine, this idea of a divine plan fit in with free will, Jack? And do we have free will? And if so, how much and how free are we? I'm going to try to answer that exactly for you. Uh, there is a German word. It's one word. It's bright, soft potential. And what that is, it was uh, discovered by many investigators. One is Dr. Benjamin LeBay, L-I-B-E-T, mm-hmm. who did experimentation to show that a third of a second before we're consciously aware of a motor activity, that our subconscious mind has already started the process in our brain. Mm-hmm. So we're lagging a little bit behind what we consciously are aware of. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there is no free will. We're following a, a script, a plan. However, further investigation of this showed there is a fifth of a second window, 200 milliseconds, in which, if we're on top of the case on the problem, we can make an alteration in those circuits that are already firing before we're really aware of it. Mm -hmm. So we have a small element of free will, but I think this plan, and it's nothing new, uh, my idea at all, for example, Mokichi Okada said, look, this is all written in the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. We come here to go through these lessons. But I think we're involved in crafting this plan in the concept that of soul families that I learned well yes. from the Forever Family dot organization. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, when we're coming to learn these lessons, think about it, KG, somebody has to play the bad guy, right? Yes. And they do this for us. You yes. Know, they may not want to do it, but they've yes. taken on this. It's like they've taken on a contract to play that role. Exactly, just like we had a script and we offered yes. them a script. So we can't hate them for doing a good job. 
And that's how I learned finally to cross that line and realize I could truly forgive people because yes, and then you see it differently. You see, yeah, you see the symbolic more at work. What exactly? How that served you? Exactly. Yes. Now, may I go a little further to say that with all the things we've talked about today, my current feeling is that what we know as waking life is merely a dream. Mm-hmm. And it was actually George Norrie on Coast to Coast asked one of his guests. Who's done quite a bit in remote viewing. Yes, and so. he said, look, what do you think about this? That life is a dream. People exit our dream through death. That's how they get out of it. And I realize that's exactly the way it must work. That's how we're going to get out of it. And we're going to wake up in another dream. And may I recommend to you and your listeners an excellent movie, recent movie called Passengers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rob Smith from Australia, who studied EVP and instrumental transcommunication, told us about this movie. And it's just an excellent movie about Mm -hmm. death, Mm -hmm. what we might expect. And as an adjunct is the other movie you've probably heard a lot of people talking about now is called Departures. It's a foreign film, Japanese with English subtitles. Mm-hmm. But these are both excellent movies, and they both require some Kleenex on hand. Oh. They'll, they'll teach us what I think that we've learned from all these years, what happens. And it looks like we go from one dream into another. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing that actually ever dies. Yeah, life is life. Life is life. (laughs) There is no death to life. It's life. I think we're born into a body, and we die from the body, but life is eternal. Oh, I agree completely and absolutely with that. And uh, it's something that I think everyone wants wants to feel this way, but once you can truly understand and believe it without doubt, it is uh, when you really for me it's connecting with the heart that heart of the universe knowing the 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 heart of what the heart of the the intent I don't know if the word intention is right but the intention that the heart knowing the heart of the universe what the purpose the heart of the universe is you know what I'm saying and that you are one with that and experiencing that you know words can't really (laughs) describe the experience The indigenous people, uh, indigenous people around the world, actually, they just had this return of the ancestors in northern Arizona, and um, all these 81 from 81 elders from all over the world, from countries all over the world, came and did a pilgrimage through northern Arizona, and they did this uh, uniting. Uh, the prophecy was that for 500 years, that there would be um, the eagle would dominate, which is intelligence, intellect. Uh, would dominate the condor and the condor would almost become um, extinct and then at the end of that 500 years there would be a meeting and there would be a return of the condor which is the heart the intelligence of the heart the path of the heart and the the, the eagle would um, begin to understand the importance and the value of the heart's intelligence well, and so they reenact what? is coming to that point now, right? Yeah, so, yeah, and about 500 years ago was when the Europeans came and dominated the Americans, right? Well, you can see things are changing now. People are talking more about love and the heart. uh, Everywhere you look, kind of. Now, there are a lot of places yet where there's a lot of war and and things going on, but once people realize that what we've got to do is reach out a hand to help Well, reach is a tipping point. Yes. Yeah. And then it's like everybody's idea. (laughs) Well, this can happen, and all these things with the intention experiments that are going on Mm -hmm. just show that the collective Mm -hmm. mind can Mm -hmm. get together and Mm -hmm. it spreads, and uh, Mm -hmm. I see this is what's going to happen. 
Yeah, we're lucky to be here at this particular time to witness this, I think, because it's a great time. Well, to and be we alive. planned it, right? Yeah, I think we absolutely <laughs> planned it. We planned on being here for the big party. Yeah. So, <laughs> very well. So, psychics agree that the light at the end of the tunnel represents the other side or the spiritual world which is not visible to us but coexists with the earthly plane on a higher vibrational level tell us about the remote viewing session in which you experienced a telepathic contact oh this was you already talked about this with your recently deceased friend I should have read further into my note yeah that was and what well, was your friend's I, name I anyway I did elucidate this because okay. what happened was this you asked me how I learned about remote viewing, and mm-hmm. it happened in Japan, as I said, and I read that article. I thought it was just a random article, but uh, my friend, Dr. Von Elsner, came into the room next, and I slid the book over to him, and during the meeting, as the other doctors and people came in, he was engrossed in this book, and when the meeting was over and everyone had left, he looked at me and he said, Jack, do you know what this means, this remote viewing? I said, no, what does it mean, Don? He said it means we can make a killing at the stock market. You know, he was an amateur. You know, he was a writer, a psychologist, but he loved the stock market, right? I said, well, I don't know about that, but uh, he knew about that, and he was always anxious to find out how I was doing. And when Ed Dames came to Hilo, every day Don would call and say, well, how is this training going? When can we do the stock market and all that? Well, one day I was sitting at the table, and I hope I have a few minutes to discuss this, Gigi. Yeah. But um, let me go ahead. I was sitting at the table with Ed after that day's training had finished, right, and the phone rang, and it was Don. And I said, well, hold on. I said, Ed, can you talk with my friend? He really wants to meet you. He's dying to meet you. And they talked, and uh, after they hung up, I asked Ed, I said, well, Ed, how do you, what do you think about my friend? He said, he's going to die. I said, what do you mean he's going to die? He said, he's literally dying to meet me. He said, he's so excited about remote viewing that when he finds out that it's really an actual thing that can be done and anyone can do it, he won't be able to take it and he's going to die. Well, I thought Ed was absolutely off his rocker. I said, come on, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. And I tell you, right then the phone rang and it was Don's wife. And she said, Jack, can you come and look at Don? He doesn't look good. I said, what do you mean? A half hour ago he was just on the phone. He said, I'm telling you, he's sitting in his chair with the most twisted grin on his face and he won't talk to me. So I drove over to see him, and sure enough, he had that funny look on his face, and I felt his pulse, and as I was feeling his pulse, it dropped off, and his hand blanched, became completely white, and I realized he had thrown an embolus to the radial artery, the artery of the arm. And so uh, he was a smoker, and I knew he had an occluded carotid artery, and he had an aneurysm of his abdominal aorta. You know, at 80-some years old, he wasn't in the greatest physical shape, but anyway... They treated that successfully. At the, the blood clot moved on, and he got his uh, color and his pulse back. Yeah. Well, a few days later, I was to have this wine and cheese party, so every all my friends could meet Danes. And I tell you what, the night or so before the party, Don's wife called me again, and this time she said, "Don just died." Oh. I said, "What do you mean he just died?" She said, "Well, we're on the way home, and suddenly he grabbed his chest and said, "Holler, take me to the hospital." And I did, and they realized he had ruptured this aneurysm, and he died in the worst imaginable pain. Well, the wife asked me would I be willing to read a eulogy at the funeral, and I said yes. And uh, everyone there, Ed Dames and everyone else, was nice to me because they realized I had lost a friend. But I knew this was coming. I thought it was odd that it would come right before he could meet Ed Dames. It was so strange. So on the day of the funeral, we did the training as usual, and... And said, we have time to do one more session. And so I'm doing this session. And the way sessions are done, KG, mm-hmm. two four-digit numbers are called out. Mm-hmm. As they're written down on paper, suddenly uh, your hand goes to an automatic motion and makes a scribble on the paper. The rest of the session is done decoding that scribble where it's felt that all the information of the target, represented by the two four-digit numbers, is contained. Well, I began to draw and label this picture of someone uh, stranded in a cave, and I thought it was some kind of a rocket crash on a foreign planet. It was so strange. And this person was trying to make a fire, trying to keep warm, Mm -hmm. and yet there was this exit from this cave. 
cave where you could see the light of the outside, but mm -hmm. this person is busy inside the darkness trying to keep warm. And right then, the fog of it all, Ed Dame says, do a mind probe. First time I heard this term, mm -hmm. he said, draw out this person's mind. Mm -hmm. So I took a new piece of paper and I started sketching areas of the brain and I said, this area here, I labeled this as warmth and sustenance. Here's an area of the family concern and so forth. And then I put the pen down and I sat back and it said to me, what's wrong? I said, I, I don't know. I don't like this place and I don't like doing this session. I'd like to stop. And then something happened and I picked the pen up again and I smiled and it said, what's, what's going on? I said, I don't know. I feel that I've been invited back. <laughs> Strange as that sounds. And it said, do another mind probe. And I, do it another, I did another drawing and this time KG. Instead of all these separated areas, there were only two areas. Uh, one was called, I could only label it telepathy. And the other area, I could only label one word, was love. Mm -hmm. And I said, whatever is happening with this individual, they knew I was here, and they're asking me not to leave, but to come back and help them. Mm -hmm. I said, now I feel better Great about Great story. Being. Yes. So do you know what the target was? It was your friend. I didn't know at the time. I thought for sure it was some... And you helped him. He was heart. having a hard time transitioning. In, in the folder, there was no pictures. There usually is. But on the tab with the two four-digit numbers was written, current status of Don Von Elsner. And this was three days after his death. Mm -hmm. And it was a half hour before I had to go to the funeral home to read the eulogy. And I never would have thought they would have thrown this to me as a target when they thought I was just upset and worried about my friend. Mm -hmm. But that was it. He was a man who said, Jack, I'm going to investigate this jury with you because I love you like a brother, but I'll never believe in anything spiritual. He said, I'm a psychologist. I'll never go for that mumble-jumble. So here he was. Couldn't get into the light, but it was right there. The exit to yeah. this dark area was right yeah. there but he was oblivious to it and couldn't get to it without help. Yes. That was an interesting case yes. for me. Yes. yes. He was in between a rock and a hard place, and he needed <laughs> help. <laughs> he was. But, you know, the Monroe Institute and their Voyager tapes and all that are designed to allow us to go and help people who may not be able to get it to the light. Yes. And when you see and them, they recommended KG passengers, you'll see that what happens when we die at that instant, we may not be aware of anything significant has changed. Yeah, it happens very yeah. fast, I understand, because I've sh studied Zhongshan, which, uh -huh. you know, in Tibetan, the Tibetan rites of the dead, and and uh, they say that it happens very fast. It's, you know, when that window opens. For, yeah. you know, and some and people miss what, that. It, it seems to me that, that what happens, we're in a dreamlike state, and we need to... Well, I tell you, uh, I'm holding a book in my hand now called Immortal Longings by F.W.H. Myers, who mm -hmm. was a great investigator of the paranormal and psychical research. He coined the word telepathy, as a matter of fact. But after his death, he, he was able to uh, contact others who sought to contact him, and he basically conveyed this information. He said to expect someone who has died to know all about death is as absurd as expecting an infant to know all about life. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we may not realize it when we die that we are in this transition, a dream state, and it requires the assistance of others. To yes, it does, and that's why the, the, the Tibetan Buddhists, they have the rights of the dead, and they have some, you know, they have people that assist them. I assist my father that way oh, after yeah. his death. So oh, it really yeah. is, it works. That's amazing. And the Tibetan practice, I understand too, part of it is to actually practice this art of dying and death so that when it comes, we, we can, you know, make the transition a little better. So yes, it's not such a bumpy transition. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. And, you know, everyone doesn't think about this, but what I've found in talking with people that more and more younger people are thinking about this now, not in a morbid way, but in a realization that, hey, they want to know what this is all about. Mm -hmm. So things are... are yeah, the young kids coming in, they have Pentium computers. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're like in the, you know, our, our, our way of processing is so slow and linear compared to, you know, the, the 
I mean, it's just yeah. incredible. But luckily, we can keep up with these kids. You know, we have all they the keep us uh, young. access to it, too, so we can keep this all going. Exactly. Yeah. Well, is there anything more you'd like to share with us before we close? We'll have to have you back, Jack. Oh, I'd be happy to be back because I'm sorry we couldn't touch on a lot of topics, and I'm sorry I monopolized the conversation because I'd like to hear oh, about you're a great guest. your experiences, too. But uh, to close with this, I would just urge people to realize that when they realize they're going through a period of transition, which we go through from lesson to lesson, that it might be a good time to stop and, and give a hand to someone else who's going through this because not only will it help that other person, it will give us a chance to stop and relax and think for a moment. Yes. Yeah. So that's what I think we should yes. always do, try to help other people. Oh, that's a wonderful way to end. So to learn more about Dr. John L. Turner and his work, please visit his website where you can also subscribe to his blog at johnlturner.com. That's johnlturner.com. Have a beautiful day, everyone. A warm mahalo. Thanks again for joining us, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Aloha.